0: Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Let's pray. Hmm. Father, I thank you for the gift that your eternal Son in his ascension gave to the church. That horrific, God hating sinner, Paul. Whom you ordained from before the foundation of the earth. To persecute the church. To hate the doctrine of Christ. And then to be encountered by him. Physically. In Jesus' resurrection. And spiritually by the Holy Spirit. And causing his eyes to be opened. To see the only way of eternal salvation, the only way to glorify You. And You had Him write this brief document. Help us, help me, be honest with it and faithful to it in the many, many months to come to the glory of Your name. Amen. That's not good. When it comes to plumbing the depths about ultimate meaning, about the purpose of our existence, when it comes to understanding what true spirituality is, and the purposes of God, in saving anybody. I want you to just imagine with me for a moment, to just imagine that there were two books in existence that were written by the greatest Christian thinker ever. And one of those books can be read from beginning to end as slowly as I'm talking right now, in 22 minutes. If that were true, do you think it would be worth your getting that book? Would it be worth your spending time and thought and energy and prayer to know, to grasp its content? There is such a man, and there is such a book. His name is Paul, and the book we refer to it as Ephesians. It's one of the 27 separate documents that comprise our New Testament. And so, kids, out of those 27, This man, Paul, an apostle, wrote 13 of them. This is one of them. And we are beginning our journey slowly through everything he wrote over who knows how many months. In the history of the church, it is over the last 2,000 years, this small treatise on the essence of Christianity has stood out is one of the most influential documents ever written by any human being, anywhere, in any subject. Samuel Taylor Coleridge referred to this little document as the divinest composition of man. This book of Ephesians was John Calvin's, the great reformer in the 1500s. It was his favorite book the 20th century New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce called it the quintessence. That means the peak. The essence. You don't know, get higher than The quintessence of Paul's theology. Now, Ephesians is not Romans. That other... Second great book written by the Apostle Paul, which is the greatest book ever written, in my opinion. But Ephesians is extremely significant. Because what it is, what Paul is doing here, he's taking the monumental themes of the essence of Christianity, and he summarizes. He takes the first half of the book, the first three chapters, and is, he's not concerned like so many present day preachers. I've got to give you something practical so you can take three steps and go do your life. He takes three chapters. He says, I'm going to talk about God's purposes in His mind. For any of you who find yourself in Christ Jesus, I want you to understand what He's about. I want you to understand your salvation. And then, based upon that, he goes to the last three chapters. He says, therefore, you are to live this way. In this book, Paul unfolds the universe-shaking reality of his personal commission by the resurrected Lord Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he sums up, here's the goods that Jesus entrusted to me not to Peter, or to John, etc. I know how it works. He's unfolded the mystery to me. And in sum, it is this, that through Jesus, the Son of David, that Jew, non-Jews are being saved. And they are being brought into the one family of God's salvation redeemed people, of those who are saved by Jesus as Jews. Gentile and Jew together into one body. It's huge for Paul in this letter. In this very short letter, Paul gives this large overview of redemptive history. Starting long before anything was created. Starting from the mind of God starting from the eternal god's saving purposes of election before he created anything and all the way through to the to Paul saying and he has summed up all things created in the man Christ Jesus In Christ, through His cross and His resurrection, seated at the right hand of the Father as the victor on behalf of a redeemed humanity consisting of both Gentiles and Jews. This letter is also extremely relevant for today's church world. Just a... An honest, slow, deliberate, clear reading of this document is a direct attack on the shallow, superficial kind of Christianity found in much of American evangelicalism. On numerous occasions in this letter, Paul paints a stark contrast. Between the truly, truly converted person's former way of doing their life up against their new life in Christ. Their new life in Christ. That's a huge term for Paul. Paul doesn't use the word Christian. It's hardly found at all in the New Testament. Okay, and if it is, where it is found, it might even have been, you know, uh, not a positive term. Okay, in Christ is Paul's term for what we call genuine Christians. That is, the redeemed are those persons who supernaturally have been put into a union with Christ mystically, spiritually. Not all who are in the church are in Christ. And with this in Christ got this letter, Paul's got this theme. You were this. But now, you are this. You used to live and act and deal with people and deal with your sinful desires this way. But now, you have been raised spiritually from the dead by the Father with Christ. You are in Christ. And in this letter, Paul makes it clear that if you are really In Christ, you are not alone. The same one who put you into Christ is the one who has fitted you together with other human beings, other persons into the body of Christ here on earth now. This letter is blatant about church life. There's no such a thing in the New Testament with Jesus or with his Apostle Paul or with Peter of the idea. Jesus loves me and it's not connected with because Jesus loves the church. Which is made up of me's. But me's are not floating in outer space. Disconnected from His love. The Bride of Christ. If you are of, and if you understand church history, you understand why I use this word. If you are of this brand spanking new idea, this weird, unbiblical 20th century and 21st century idea of a Christian being separated from the local church being separated from being a a committed human being who loves Jesus to Jesus' love other persons in local expression where they would love one another, irritate one another, forgive one another, show faithful commitment to the organism, of the life of Jesus, his family, if you're of that mindset, then you will not like what this letter actually says. In Ephesians, Paul gives a number of images of the body of the church. He does call it that. He calls it the Ecclesia, the Greek word, that we translate church. Which means the assembling. That means individuals are assembling together. He calls it the body, the image. Christ, the head. And then the rest, those who are being saved by him, his body. He calls them the temple because they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He calls them the new humanity in this letter. And of course, he calls them those who are in union with Christ. And he calls them in this letter, the bride of Christ. He calls them the family of God. The doctrine of the church is highly emphasized in the book of Ephesians. And it is therefore a huge challenge to the lone ranger Christian. It is a huge threat to To the uncommitted, unaccountable, self-centered, modern person, person who refers to him or herself as a Christian. Now, one final introductory remark. I can still fondly remember sitting in Dr. Hammond's class as an undergraduate. In the spring of 1989. The class was the prison epistles. Which referred to four epistles written by Paul. Ephesians. Philippians. Colossians. And Philemon. And when we were in the 11th week of a 15 week semester. We're still in the first book. Ephesians. Ephesians. And only in chapter 3 I realized we weren't going to get through, much less even get to the other epistles. But because it was the Jesus-loving, almost 80-year-old Dr. Hammond, I did not care. Verse after verse caused us in that class that it flowed through Dr. Hammond. And he would preface it as he would go off. With this word over and over again. Students! And then would come another glorious exhortation. Admonition. Application from the text which would cause our souls to soar to the height of what Paul has written in this glorious book. Called Ephesians. And I pray that a touch. Of that kind of an experience. Be happening week after week. And month after month. As we plumb the depths of what God reveals about himself. And about his intentions. And about our salvation. And our walk called sanctification. And about the church. May Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 be answered on our behalf. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that He would give to us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him by having our eyes enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that they see, so that we may know what is the hope to which He has called us. And what are the the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us In Christ Jesus, that very power that He worked when He raised that man from the dead. Oh, may it be happening now, in week after week. So, this is the opening sermon on this book. And so, as I normally do, I spend time giving introductory background Stuff. (laughs) In other words, what is this thing? Where did we get it? Why did he write it? What's the context? Etc. So that's where we're doing this morning. First of all, chapter 1, verse 1, if you have it open, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's how you wrote letters then. You didn't say, Dear so and so, and at the end of the letter, sign it. You did it up front. Who's writing it? Now, just, just, I'm going to, okay, try to do it in 12 seconds. Look, there are a bunch of scholars today, starting about 100 years ago, who try to argue Paul didn't write this letter, just so you know. Okay? And I read all their arguments. And I'm not going to get you into the weeds of why they do that. I just don't want to do that this morning. Paul wrote this letter. The burden of proof is on them. In other words, when it says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, this is not some person lying in the name of Paul. This is Paul writing the letters. He says there, and he says again in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So, Paul wrote the letter. Second question. To whom did he write it? And what I mean by that is this. Was this document particularly directed toward the church, toward be really clear, toward all the house churches throughout this city, this very large city of 250,000 or so people at this time. Was this directed towards the Christians in all the house churches in the city of Ephesus? Like he clearly did when he wrote from prison to Philippi, a church he planted. And he, you see all these personal uh, comments. And Come on, two ladies, get along. Thank you so much for the money gift that you send by Epaphroditus. Okay. And like he did with the Thessalonians, like he does with the Corinthians. Is this letter directed toward the church as a whole and all those house churches in the city of Ephesus? The reason I ask the question is because in verse 1 of chapter 1, the words in Ephesus may not be original to what Paul wrote. Now I'm going to come back to that. But what I want us to do first is to just get the flavor now of, of the Apostle Paul's relationship to the church, the Christians in the city of Galatia. And we go to Luke because he gives us all the information. According to Luke, in the book of Acts, Paul arrived in Ephesus for the first time at the end of his second missionary journey. So this is after Paul, you know, he saw that vision come over to Macedonia and they go over there and they. They preach and they plant the church in Philippi. He's still in jail there. He's persecuted every city he goes to. And then they go to Berea. and They go to Thessalonica. These churches are planted there. He escapes up to Greece. And he goes to Athens. And there's some Christians there now. And he goes to Corinth, etc. He's already done all that. Now, on his way back, he crosses the Aegean again. And, yeah, let's go into Ephesus. And he goes into Ephesus, and it's the year A.D. 52. It's 19 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And He goes to the Jewish synagogue. And He preaches and argues with the Jews about Christ in the synagogue for just a couple, three maybe, four weeks. And He leaves. Okay, so there's your first taste of Ephesus. With some Jews in the synagogue just for a few weeks, and he's gone. Then a year later, on his third missionary journey, boom, goes again to Ephesus. This is when he ran into the twelve men, most likely Jewish men, and have you heard about the Holy? We never heard there was a Holy Spirit. We've only been baptized into John the Baptist's baptism. And then Paul makes things more clear to these twelve men. And then for the next three months in Ephesus, he is constantly in the synagogue of the Jews teaching, preaching, and arguing. And the arguing got hotter and hotter over the three months to the extent where finally there are some Jews that are converted, brings them with him, but he had to stop going to the synagogue. And he started reaching out more and more to Gentiles. And he rented a facility, the school of Tyrannus, and he taught there. For everyone come... To he welcomed, and he taught, and he preached, and he argued from the Scriptures for the next two years. So that Luke summarizes it this way in Acts 19, verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the Word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Two long years. He's there close to two and a half years the second trip by this time. And this is when now the unbelieving Jews are so angry. And finally, you remember the riot in Ephesus. And great this guy's destroying all the idol-making and all that. And there's a huge uproar and a riot now in the city because of Paul and his teaching and his missionary band, And so he finally goes and leaves Ephesus with all these believers there. And it's the year A.D. 56. Okay? He's been there twice now. A couple weeks, and now for about almost two and a half years. And then, one year later after that, he met with all these elders, these leaders of all these house churches from Ephesus. But not in Ephesus. He didn't want to go there. He wanted to get to Jerusalem. He said, have them come 40 miles down the shore and meet me at Miletus. And he gives that great speech in chapter 20 to the elders at Ephesus. And then, he's gone. It's the year eighty fifty seven, And from there, Paul makes it to Jerusalem. He is almost beaten to death in the temple. The secular government save him from that. The Roman government. He is therefore incarcerated and imprisoned. The Jews try to assassinate him in Jerusalem. And therefore, he is able by the Roman government to be snuck out of Jerusalem and go down to the seashore and be held in prison over there in Caesarea. And he ends up being there like two years incarcerated. This is where he gets a speech before Festus and before Agrippa, etc. And then finally, he just says, look, I'm a citizen, I appeal to Caesar. And if you're a citizen, which a minority were citizens in the Roman Empire, you get the right to go before Caesar in your, your court case. And so, okay, we've got to ship them off way to Rome. They put them on the ship. You got the, the storm. You have the shipwreck, et cetera. But they finally make it to Rome. Paul is, he's, this whole time, he is essentially in chains. And he's got the Roman guards bringing him there. And then Luke closes his, his book called Acts of the Apostles this way. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. We see this because he wrote to the Philippians during this prison. And he needed to be supported. They needed money in order to continue to do this. And his friends. And, anyway, and he was having problems with the church in Rome at this time. etc. But he, he lived. He had to have his own rented quarters. But there's always a Roman guard who was in charge of him. And he welcomed all who came to him. Proclaiming the kingdom of God. And teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. With all boldness. And without hindrance. And so... Here he is. The book of Acts is closed. All of those things about his relationship with the Ephesians and Ephesus have already happened. And he had not yet written. Have, he did not write this book yet. Get the picture. So here he is in his incarceration. And from Rome, he writes the book of Colossians. And he writes the book, a little short little letter to Philemon, and he writes this document we call Ephesians. It's either the year eighty sixty one or sixty two. Okay, I did that for a reason. I want you to feel that relationship with Ephesus. Okay. He had a huge part in planning that church. He three stints. At one time, he constantly was preaching and teaching in the city to non Christians who would become Christians, and then to Christians for I like two and a half years. Now, you open up this letter that you have in your Bible, okay, knowing that, and when you look at it, you begin to notice there are no personal references. To anybody, which is pretty normal for Paul, like to Corinth, to Philippi, okay. but it's not here. And so just, here, here's one little sign. That, hmm. Maybe when Paul wrote this, it was intended for a broader audience that included many people that did not personally encounter him, but only knew about him as an apostle. Okay. Then there are other clues that Paul did not personally know his audience. Well, maybe he knew some, but he knew he's writing to a broader audience. For instance, he does not address any specific problems like he normally does. Philippi, Thessalonians, Corinthian letters. It's like there's nothing like that. It's more like a general epistle. Like, like like Peter wrote. He gives no personal details about his own suffering, his own imprisonment, like he did to the Philippians when he's in the same house being under locking key. But when you look at chapter 1, I want you to do that, verses 15 and 16, and you read it, it sounds like Paul has... No personal relationship with the readers. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He does not say that kind of thing to the Ephesians. Or to the Corinthians. Or to the Thessalonians. These churches that he planted. He does not talk like that. He says, I remember when I'm with you. And I thank God for you. The only time he says something like that is like, well, to the epistle to the Colossians. Because he's never been there. He doesn't know them personally. And he says, when I've heard of, you're And so it sounds like he did not know them. You go to chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. He writes, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Listen to this. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Well, if he's t- if he's writing only and directly to all these people that used to come to the school of Tyrannus all the time and they worship God and Paul would teach hour upon hour, he would not say. Assuming you've heard, he's told his story ten thousand times over. He, he said, the, "These other Christian preachers, they have told you about me, right?" Okay, and then one more in chapter four, verses twenty to twenty-one. He says, but this is not the way you've learned Christ. Pause. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. Assuming they taught you correctly. Okay. Do you feel the problem? Okay. You take, that's what we call internal evidence. Now you look inside the particular document itself. Okay. When you take that now. And. You put that together with, there is a huge, what we call, textual problem. Whether the words in Ephesus is what Paul actually wrote or not. And, in my opinion, the weight of the manuscript evidence points to the fact that the words in Ephesus were not original. Now, many manuscripts, let me just, okay, I try not to do it. By manuscripts, what that means, guys, look, the printing press did not come about until the late 1400s AD. Okay? So the only way you had books or documents, whether and Aristotle to some extent survives, people copy them. Because when they get hundreds of years old, you know, papyrus, from the papyrus tree or even these things start to, to to crumple and you're going to be destroyed so you've got to copy them by hand now you go home this week and I want you to bring back to the entire gospel of John from your English translation I want you to sit down with and that's the word, and I want you to copy it Ooh. I will show you you and the see. you skipped a line here and you didn't know because you went up your eyes did death when you did this or for some reason you wrote and instead of and, uh, the, the indefinite article, A N. Okay? Or, or something like that. But each one of you brings me your document. Let's just say we got four; these four people do. And so you bring me your gospel document. And you make different errors. But then you have babies, which means your document goes to this part, your document goes over to that region, and yours goes there. And it gets 200 years old. we got to make more copies, and then make more copies. Guess what? Your little flaw shows up. But it doesn't show his. Those three are on Greek, but they're different. Why is it? And so this is a science that some scholars spend their life in called textual criticism. It's when you look at all, we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. Okay? And when you look at all the evidence, almost, almost all of them are really easy to detect what happened and what's the original. Because of the Psalms, okay? In the 1800s, we, we come across all kinds of documents no one knew existed, especially because they're in that old library in Alexandria, Egypt, which is very dry, which preserves these things. and we found see let me sort of stop We have many documents of Ephesians, these Greek manuscripts, where the words in Ephesus are there, and most of those documents, when they were therefore actually written by copy of copy, go, they're about as old as about 1200, 1300, 1400 A.D. Okay? And then, we come across a number of documents that go all the way back to the 3rd century. It's all there. And been the 4th century. And the words in Ephesus are not there. And what's really strange, when you look at, that in the Greek, by the words not being there, it really and this is, a, this is a scholarly problem, the words cause the grammar of the Greek to be really awkward. I'm just saying, it's, it's a problem that we still deal with. It's just, it's just strange. And I can write this on a board, I can start to show you, and I would bore you to tears. So I'm not going to do that. Let me just say this. If the words in Ephesus were there in the original, it's really hard to explain why these would be missing in a number of other documents. It's easier to explain why they would be added. Because when you add in Ephesus or any other place, in Philippi or any, it makes all the sense in Greek. When it's taken out, it's really awkward. All right, that's enough. You can tell me later, honey, what I should have done any of that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, so, so this causes... Let me just give you one example. F.F. F. Bruce, you know, I think he must have died 20 years ago by now. And a uh, uh, prolific New Testament scholar in the late 20th century. He tries to explain the problem of the awkwardness of Greek this way... Well, maybe in what Paul is doing, he is writing this general letter to all the Christians in all these different cities in Asia Minor. And he leaves it to Tychicus, who he's going to send the letters with. To when okay, you're going to go to Sardis, and when you get to and when you when you get to Laodicea, and you're going to give one to the Colossians, and you're going to give one to Ephesus, then he would fill in the name. Maybe. Probably not, but we don't know. Okay, so this is... All right. Now, okay, here's, here, here's, here's the good stuff. This is what I think. In other words, here's the picture that, that most scholars paint of. In other words, okay, what is this document? Where did it come from? Okay. Where's the context? What's happening here? This is the picture that most scholars paint and that I do agree with. Here's Paul. He's in house arrest in the city of Rome. Epaphras, one of his underlings. Apathus founded the church in the city of Colossae in Asia Minor, east of Ephesus, okay? He founded that church. Paul's never been there. Epaphras comes to Rome. He's in Rome. He visits with Paul in his house arrest. And he tells Paul about a number of problems happening in the church at Colossae. There's some strange theological stuff going on with some very sketchy teachers. And So Paul sits as the apostle and he responds to those problems. And he writes what we have in the New Testament called Paul's epistle to the Colossians, to the Colossae church. And then, along with that, he also writes a short little letter to one of the members of the Colossian church. His name is Philemon. It's concerning a runaway slave of Philemon's whose name is Onisthus, which, if you heard Bob's great sermon, you're familiar with Philemon. He writes these two documents. Okay. Now, when you take Colossians, because there's some high theology going on in Paul dealing with some problems, it's as if. Paul's mind is spinning with the great heights of God's purposes in salvation. That before he sends those two letters off with Tychicus, he sits down and he writes a more general letter that he wants spread through the churches of Asia Minor. We call it now Ephesians. He's driven to set out the purposes of God. The purposes of the churches. And he writes it so that this letter be copied and copied and spread and circulated through all the churches on purpose. And so at the end of Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 21 and 22, Paul writes this, "...so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything." I have sent him to you with these letters for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. All right? So, Paul writes this great theological treatise to the churches all over southwestern Asia Minor. You can look in the back of your Bibles. Not right now. You can look at maps. It's really helpful. That's what he's doing. So before I close now, what I want to do is take a 9-minute to 10-minute flyover of the whole terrain of this glorious forest called Ephesians. Because we are going to be on the ground. We're going to be in the trees and picking apart bark for a long time. But I want to try to say, let's get the feel and the flow of the whole thing of what Paul is doing before we spend month after month after month in it. And so what I'm going to present to you here then is my rewriting. Of the book of Ephesians, in brief and on purpose, in my own words, that is paraphrased to get the feel and the flow. You ready? Yeah. All right. Paul, an apostle, to you, dear believers throughout Asia Minor, I want you to understand the foundation and the purpose and the source. Of your salvation. You have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What I mean is this God the Father chose you in order to predestine you to be saved by the blood of His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And the way any of you know that that refers to you is because you believe in this glorious Gospel by the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. All of this glorious Gospel has been planned and it has been carried out by the Holy Trinity in order to reach this goal. That God's glory in grace will be praised through you. And so my prayer for all of you is that the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your tender affections for Christ may continue to be opened as you contemplate what I'm writing you. That they would be opened as you contemplate the future hope that the Father has called you to. This unimaginable future glory has been secured for you by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God as victor over all of our enemies, now and for eternity. This very Jesus is the head of the church. He's the leader. He's the source of His body. I want you to think about your own experience of realizing your call to salvation You Gentiles, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You had zero inclination to love and to enjoy the one true God. But instead, you were a worshiper of your own sinful flesh and desires. You followed after them like all the rest of mankind. We were all born into this world as guilty sinners found for cosmic judicial punishment by the one holy God. But, something happened. And this is what happened. But, God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great eternal love before the foundation of the world with which He loved us, and even when we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, God came and He made us alive together with Christ. Oh, Christian! Do you see it? By grace. By grace. You have been saved. And He raised us up with Christ. And He has seated us with Him in the heavenly places far above all things that could harm us. And He did it so that Not just the coming decades. But the coming eons. The coming ages. Upon ages. Upon ages in the resurrection. So that He may show the immeasurable, infinite riches of His grace. In kindness to us who are in. Christ Jesus. Do you get it, reader? You non-Jews, you've been purchased to be part of God's one holy people by the cross of Jesus. It is Jew and Gentile are made one people in Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because it is God's purpose to make known His eternal wisdom in the revelation of His Son Jesus Christ through the corporate gathering of His church on earth made up of Jews and Gentiles. And therefore, I pray that each and every individual of you in the body may have spiritual strength to understand With all the saints. What is the breadth. And the length. And the height. And the depth. That you may in union with Jesus. Know the love of Christ. Surpasses knowledge. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so based upon God's sovereign mercy in saving you and fitting you together into your churches, make sure that you therefore walk and live your life in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which He has called you. That is live with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is only one body and one Spirit, just as You were called in one hope that belongs to Your call. One Lord, one faith, One baptism. One God and Father of you all. And He's over all. And He's through all. And He is in all believers. And do you know that the resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus gave to the churches gifts? He gave the gifts of preaching and teaching and leading for the purpose to equip the whole body, each and every individual member of the churches, so that they will do the work of the ministry. Particularly the ministry that consists of maturing one another doctrinally and morally. So that we would no longer be gullible like childish spiritual children easily deceived by Christian teachers and leaders who seem to be anointed. Oh, believers, shun the cunning and the craftiness of many Christian teachers and their religious schemes. But instead, be a people who are speaking the truth in love to one another so that you together may grow Up in every way like the head of the church Christ from Him the head all of us the whole body are joined together by every joint with which it is equipped when each individual part is working properly what happens is this It makes for the body to mature and to grow as it builds itself up in love. And so, put away living and acting like an unbeliever. But instead, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and walk humbly before each other. Forgiving each other. Walk in kindness. In building up one another. Because Christ with His bloody cross forgave you. And when it comes to sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness. None of this should even be named among you as is proper among saints. And you women who are married, submit to your own husbands. And you men who are married, love your wives in the same way that Jesus loves the church and gave Himself up to death for her. And children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. The commandment says, honor your father and your mother. And dads, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. And you bond servants, you employees, obey your earthly masters or employers with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would to Christ. Not by way of eye service, being a people pleaser, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And finally, all of you, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might and continually be putting on the armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against all the schemes of the devil. Pray for me, Paul, so that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Grace, be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. amen. And so we begin a journey, and this brief letter is about believers. It is about who we are in Christ. And don't take this next one lightly because it is important to God. It is about you understanding how you became a Christian. And so let's absorb it, let's be changed by it, let's be rebuked and encouraged. Let's be deepened by this glorious epistle. Ultimately, why? So that God's clear, stated purpose, three times, three times in chapter 1, verses 3-14, through 14, three times He says God's purpose for creating and saving anybody. So that this will happen more and more through us at Sovereign Grace. That we would be a people who exist Unto the praise. There's a feeling there, there's a relationship there, there's a union with Christ, a praise to God and his glorious grace to us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And your grace is glorious. While we were dead in our transgressions and sins, you came along not because of anything within us that deserved it, but you blew with the gospel preaching in your spirit and made us alive together with your Son. And then you told us you chose us before the foundation of the world and predestined us in love to be in Him. You were good. Oh, may we see with the eyes of the Holy Spirit in our hearts the beauty and the glory of this gospel and be more useful to you, Lord Jesus, as bondservants to the glory of your name. Amen.